If I were to begin by saying to you that God is sovereign, many different thoughts may come to your mind. One thought may be to picture some sort of sovereign king in all his pomp and glory. Others of you may be, especially if you've spent time around church, may think, oh, oh boy, here we go. Here's that tiresome debate about God's sovereignty versus the free will of man. I'm not sure what comes to your mind, but we are going to look at this truth that God is sovereign. And we will look at a number of things, including some of the things I just listed there. But rather than this being some sort of lecture on this thought that God is sovereign, I hope to just really look at this through the lens of a couple of stories of two very different kings. But before we go into any of that, let's, let's talk about this word sovereign. What do we mean by that word sovereign? If you look up the Cambridge Dictionary, it tells us that being sovereign means having the highest power or being completely independent. Now, that's a secular definition. Does that line up with what God tells us about his sovereignty? And my short answer would be yes, but let's see that coming out in the story, the first story together. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel chapter 4, let me give you, I'm finding the spot. I'll give you a little background on this story. So Daniel 4 is an interesting story. It's a strange story. We have the story of this very great and powerful king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he's one of the most powerful men of all history. He's the, the grand, in his own eyes, a very prideful man, uh, king of the Babylonian Empire. His name's Nebuchadnezzar, and, and in this moment of history, he is easily the most powerful man. And yet, he has got this power by tearing down other kingdoms. One of the kingdoms that he's torn down is the kingdom of Judah. God's special holy city of Jerusalem has been part of that kingdom, and he's torn it down. He's taken people out of that place in exile and placed them in Babylon. One of those people is a guy named Daniel, who this book is you know, written by and, and tells a lot of his stories. Some of those stories include stories in chapters 1 through 3 that show us that God has been pointing out to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I'm more important and more powerful than you. But that doesn't seem to have gotten through to him. And so here we are picking up a story where finally God gets that message through to him. It actually starts out with Nebuchadnezzar talking about what's happened after the fact. So we see this in verse 1 of chapter 4. If you read with me, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So he's addressing people. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion endures from generation to generation. And you think, wow, He doesn't sound that prideful. Well, He is. But he's gone through an incredible change, which we're about to talk about. If you read through the story, and it's worth the read, uh, what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar is kind of in the height of his power and pomp, and he has this dream that disturbs him. It's a dream of this mighty tree that's cut down in its prime. And he asks his interpreters to tell him, what does this dream mean? And they can't tell him. Finally, they bring Daniel to him, and Daniel tells him, hey, this is a message from God. And I would encourage you, basically, he's saying he's going to cut you down. And so Daniel says, hey, why don't you humble yourself? Maybe God will change his mind. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't heed the warning. In fact, we read what happens one year later in verse 28. It says this, all this that God had prophesied came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
At the end of 12 months, as he, walk, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, listen to his pride, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Scary stuff. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be that with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It comes true. Exactly what God has spoken here. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar literally goes out of his mind. He goes crazy and he is driven out uh, away from the kingdom until the the time period that God has allotted. And he, yes, goes crazy, eats grass. Like, I mean, he's completely out of his mind until finally he lifts his eyes to heaven, humbles himself before God And God restores not just his mind, but restores the kingdom to him. And so it's a very strange story, but an interesting one. But the point I really want you to see is actually what we just read in verse 32. Because there's a phrase there that's actually repeated earlier on in verse 17 and also in verse 25. And the phrase is this. The Most High, as in God, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. When God repeats something in his word, he's not wasting his words. No, he's emphasizing something that's very important. And the important truth we need to hear about today is is this thought that we're talking about today, which is that God is sovereign, that God is over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whoever he wants. In fact, if you read the NIV translation of this phrase that happens three times, it says that the Lord God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to whom he chooses. So here we have one of the most powerful and independent rulers of history being taught a very great, hard, and painful truth. And that is that only God is truly sovereign. Our earlier definition that we talked about is that sovereign means completely independent and supreme in power. And really, only God ever fits that definition. When we say that God is sovereign, that means that God is over all things, all time, all space. Nothing happens in one molecule of this universe that God hasn't seen or allowed. Now, if you just stop and think about that for a moment, that's a pretty strong statement. But I believe it's true. This is a great thought. Or at least it seems to be for a little while. And and the longer we think about it, it actually can make us a little bit uncomfortable. And the reason for that is if God is in control, if God is over all things, if he is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and even over our lives and our choices, are we simply puppets being pulled along by divine strings? Are we robots on some sort of predestined, pre-programmed path? Do you and I really have freedom to make choices or has God already set the choices for us? If you go to Proverbs chapter 14, uh, sorry, 16, verse 33, there's a scripture that sounds like many others in the Bible, but it says this, the lot is cast into the lap, 
but every decision is from the Lord. And basically what it's saying is, hey, you can roll the dice, but God ultimately determines how even the dice land. If God is in control of everything in the way that we're talking about here, how can you and I be held responsible for our choices if God's behind them and orchestrating them? And yet the Bible absolutely teaches that you and I are responsible. There's again many verses I could go to. I'll just go to one. Romans 14 verse 12. So then each of us, as in every human being, will give an account of himself to God. And so the rub is this. When we want to line up these two concepts against each other, we want to say, okay, is it predestination or is it responsibility? Is it sovereignty or is it my free will? This tension is not new. To oversimplify a lot of church history, 500 years ago, the church went through this massive split called the Reformation. And amongst the group called the Protestants, there actually was two camps of thought. One thought was called Calvinism after a guy named John Calvin. Another was called Arminianism after a guy named Jacob Arminius. Both were theologians and thinkers who really talked about these ideas. And there were typically, and there still are, five points of debate over God's sovereignty versus the free will of man. And for 500 years, people who love God have disagreed on these things. There are people... From church history, heroes that I look up to that fall on both sides of the debate here. I have friends who fall on both sides of the debate. I have no intention of, in this moment of wading into this debate, but I do want to point you to something that I find helpful and actually quite beautiful. It's from a sermon preached in 1858 by a guy named Charles Spurgeon, and this is what he had to say about this whole thing. He said that God predestines... And that man is responsible are two things that few can see, as in we struggle to see both of them. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory. They are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained as in predestined, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that the two truths contradict one another. Another helpful thing that I find is a thought given by a guy who lived in the 1900s. Another pastor, a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he had an analogy, and not, not a perfect analogy, but one that I find somewhat helpful. He talked about this whole debate in terms of the analogy of a cruise ship. He said, imagine a cruise ship going from New York to the United Kingdom. That ship is set on its course. It leaves one port and heads for the other. Just as God has set the course of our lives from birth to death. But the passengers on board that ship have some freedom. They can choose to go to the swimming pool. They can read a book. They have limited freedom. And likewise, God has given us freedom and responsibility. It is limited, but freedom and responsibility. And this is a gracious gift from God to us. The reason these thoughts and analogies even struggle to capture 
the thoughts that we're talking about here is because ultimately, like some of the things we've talked about in this series, this is a mystery. And we see some more of this mystery of God's sovereignty coming out in the story of the second king I want to talk about. Several hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar was long gone and his empire was long gone, there was another king. This king was a very different king. He was not wealthy. He was not well known even during his lifetime on earth. He was not born into nobility. In fact, he was born into an animal shelter. I am, of course, speaking about Jesus, the humble king who God exalted to be the king above all kings. He came and lived a sinless life. And he proved by miracles that he was exactly who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. But the people he came to love and to lead rejected him and they killed him. He rose from the dead, proving again that he was God. And through his death made a way for us to have our many shortcomings forgiven. After his resurrection, he returned to heaven. But before he left, he said this news that I have come to forgive and to reconcile. He said, spread that good news, spread it on to others. And the first moment of that happening is the story specifically that I want for us to look at. Because the story, this news was actually shared with the very men who wanted the death, who had figured out the murder of Jesus in Jerusalem. And so we're going to read from Acts chapter 2. I'm going to turn there, Acts chapter 2, and invite you to do the same. And what we find in Acts chapter 2 is is the people in Jerusalem who had orchestrated and organized the crucifixion of Jesus. There's this upheaval, the Holy Spirit comes and the whole story is worth a read. But in this moment, this crowd comes together and one of Jesus' followers, a guy named Peter, stands up and he speaks. And he says this in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Do you hear as we read this story, both the predestination and the responsibility coming out in these words? It says in verse 23 that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion wasn't something that caught God by surprise. That was actually why Jesus came. God knew that that would happen, and yet the people are responsible. It says here, the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. There is a responsibility as well. So is God in control of all things? Even the murder of his son, Jesus. And the emphatic answer is yes. And then we turn and ask the question of, do we also have freedom to make choices and are we responsible for the choices? And again, the emphatic answer is yes. And we can look at this and say, well, that's just a mystery. But better than that, we can see this as a worship producing mystery. You see, God controls. And yes, we have responsibility, but God in his goodness makes a way for us to be forgiven. 
You see, the people responsible for the murder of Jesus are offered forgiveness. The same forgiveness that you and I are offered. Listen to what happens to the crowd in Acts chapter 2. It says in verse 37, this. Now when they heard this, this message of what they had done and who Jesus really was, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children who, and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Even in these verses, we hear this tension coming out again. It says here, they say, what should we do? And and basically, Peter says, choose to repent. Soften your hearts. Turn to God. There's this response. And yet at the same time, in that last verse that I read, verse 39, it says, the Lord our God calls to himself. You know, the people who will come to him are the ones that God calls. We can't come to God unless he calls us himself. So the question I ask you in this moment is, is God calling you? And how will you respond? Will you surrender to Jesus as your sovereign king? Will you repent? Will you be baptized and experience forgiveness? Will you receive the Holy Spirit? If you don't know this Jesus, seize this moment. Don't delay any longer. Repent and know him. For those of you who have surrendered to King Jesus, I have a question for you. And that is, what practical difference does God's sovereignty make in our lives? Let's get practical here. Let's think about this in in a way of an analogy again. I want you to imagine that three people are set before this beautiful dinner. And as the plates of food are laid out before them, each of them has a different response. One person decides to abstain from eating. They look at the food and they say, you know what, that just looks a little bit too messy. I may, you know, I might get some mess on myself. I'm not going to have that. The second person begins to eat, but we soon discover that they're some sort of food critic. And all that they want to do is kind of just talk about it and, and kind of talk about its fine points and its bad points. And you start to wonder if they actually even enjoy it. The third person simply eats the lovely meal and enjoys every bite. They savor every bite. As we think about these three different people, which one describes you? Which which of these people are you when it comes to the sovereignty of God? Christians, let's not ignore God's sovereignty and say, well, that's just too messy. I don't want to think about it. Equally, let's not just critique it. Let's not just be those people who debate about the five points or the three points of, um, you know, like, let's not do that. Let's be the people who enjoy the sovereignty of God. What exactly does it mean to enjoy the sovereignty of God? Well, let's go back to our definition. Our definition said that God is sovereign, and that means that he is independent and supreme in power. But what we didn't say earlier that we need to say is that it also means that God is working all things together for our good. If I was to turn to Romans 8, 28, which is an incredible promise, it tells us this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, hear this. Nothing has happened and nothing will happen that God has not foreseen or intended in his eternal and perfect plan. And so tonight or today, are your thoughts anxious? Because if they are, think about God's sovereign plan and find peace in it. Enjoy that. Are you struggling to find sleep at night? Find rest in the sovereignty of God. Are you hurt? Find healing for your pain by trusting in God's perfect eternal plan. He is good. He is just. And he is working all things together. And as I say these words, it's now time for me to give you a moment of honesty. I would have found this sermon much easier to preach on almost any other week. Right now I'm grieving some news that I've heard this week that's coming out of Australia where they're saying that I may not be able to visit my family, which I miss a lot, until mid-next year. It means I can't go and meet the niece that I haven't met yet, who's almost two years old. It means that I may miss my dad's 70th birthday. There's all these things, that I, and I'm, I'm grieving the loss of that. And to you, that may not seem significant, but it is significant to me. I moved here with expectations of, of how I'd still be able to connect with family, and those have just gone. And I'm faced in this moment with the question that I know some of you are finding tough in that mo- this moment. And that is, do I, do you really believe all of this? All this stuff we just talked about. And church family, I've got to say to you, if I don't believe this, I am lost. I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not praying and asking of myself. And that is to completely trust that the independent and the supreme God of all things is working all things together for his good and also for our good. And so with assurance, let's cling, let's rest in this great truth that God is sovereign.